So as I said a moment ago, we're in this series about giving an answer for the hope that we have. And this morning, you're turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 18. It's going to be a little while before we get there, but we're going to start with Romans 1, verse 18 this morning. So we're working on explaining why we believe what we believe. And last week, we began to look at the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Start to ask what that really means. And last week, we spent a lot of time diving into the Scripture to see what God has revealed in His Word about the answer to this question. And so this morning, we're just going to just quickly review what we looked over last week. But if you want to dive in deeper, I would encourage you to go online, to go on the app, find uh, the sermon, and and look through those Scriptures uh, yourselves. But last week, we said this as we began to ask this question, is Jesus the only way? And we saw in John 14 that Jesus proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So Jesus is the way. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he talks about his role in revealing the Father to us. And he tells the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Acts chapter 4, we have the apostles and they, they heal a man as they're walking into the temple and they get uh, called into the court, basically, by the Jewish leadership, and they're like, explain yourselves. And they they talk about Jesus, how he was crucified, and how he was raised from the dead. And then they say, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, right? So Jesus is the only one who can save us. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6, we saw that it's God's desire to save all people. It says that he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It says that there's one God, that there's one mediator between God and man. There's one go-between. There's one person who can bring reconciliation between us and God because our relationship is severed by our wrongdoing, by the evil that we do. And it basically says that that Jesus Christ is that mediator because he paid the ransom. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so then we looked at several verses in in the book of John and in the first John, and it's just summed up in this, that eternal life is received through trust in Jesus. That everyone who believes in the Son will have eternal life. And everyone who rejects the Son, well, God's judgment remains on that person. All right? These are all related to ideas that we've talked about in the uh, last few weeks about God's justice and God's mercy and how God wants to save but we reject him, right? So again, go back and and check out those messages because they're all linked together, all right? So we asked the question last week, is Jesus the only way to God? And, And I think Scripture teaches, yes, Jesus is the only way to God. Well, this belief is not a popular belief. In fact, many people find it quite offensive. How can you say that you guys know the way? This raises all kinds of questions for us, not only for us as Christians, but for, for people out in, in, in the world, in the public, as they, they wrestle with Christianity. What does it mean? And so we want to begin to look at these questions today. The first thing we want to ask is, well, what about all the other religions that we see in the world? Do all religions lead to God? You know, there's a stream of thought in society, in our culture, that the answer to this question is, is yes. That 
that there's this idea of religious pluralism is what it's called. And it's basically like, hey, all religions, whatever you do, as long as you're faithful in it, they get you to the same place. They get you to God in, in some way. But when you begin to really think about this, and you begin to study what these different religions teach, what Christianity teaches, what Judaism teaches, what Islam teaches, what Hinduism teaches, what Buddhism teaches, um, it's very clear that these are not the same things. And if you asked an adherent of any one of these religions, they would say, I'm not that, and this religion doesn't go to the same place. I've got a slide up here, just a, a picture, you know, it's like, this, this place is pointing to different places on the earth. I don't know where this picture is from, but it's like Buenos Aires is 6,400 6, kilometers that way, and Singapore is 9,000 kilometers the other way. Like, like, when you study the teachings of these different faiths, these different systems of belief, they point in different directions. There is some surface similarity, which is what I think allows people to say, yeah, they all go to the same place. In some way, shape, or form, they all try to deal with the problem of evil and how to, why there's good in the world. And uh, there's like uh, an attempt at a moral system, a system of values of, of what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong. There are some spiritual practices that may be similar. Um, but in reality, when you dig in these religions, these systems of belief, make contradictory truth claims. In other words, it's like saying two plus two is four and two plus two is five. Like one of those is true and one of those is not. You're, you're not getting to the same place. And so let's just look at an example of this. This might be a little hard to read. It's, it's, it's better if it's all on one screen, but when it's all on one screen, it's harder to read. I get that. So um, we think about Islam, for example. Muslims believe that there is a personal Unitarian God, right? So, so God is a person. He's all-powerful. Um, his name is Allah, and he created the world. They believe that mankind sins against Allah, and that it's through repentance and faith and good deeds that you can be saved. They believe in the idea of judgment, that human beings will spend eternity in hell or in heaven, and their vision of heaven is, is very much about material pleasure. It's about sensual pleasure. You deny yourself in this life and you do the right thing and then um, it'll be one big party essentially when you get there. And so this idea that um, they're seeking after this, this paradise and that God will bless them if they do the right things and if they're obedient and if, and if they um, are, are faithful, then they will be blessed with this material paradise where they will spend eternity enjoying it, right? Buddhism, in contrast, teaches something completely different. It teaches that the ultimate reality is not personal. So this is not God as we would understand God to be. This is, this is not a person that you would interact with, right? Uh, rather, the world is either an illusion or it's just a manifestation in some way, shape, or form of of this ultimate reality. And now this is really hard for our Western minds to kind of grasp. Like I, I struggle to really like hammer down these concepts because it, it doesn't function like many of the religions that, that, we're, that we're familiar with. They believe in the, in the concept of karma. The word karma simply means action. And the idea here is that there's cause and effect. 
You might be familiar with this because this is popularized in you know, TV and movies and these types of things. But like, if you do good things in the next life, you'll receive good. And if you do bad things in the next life, it'll be worse for you, right? And so the goal of, of the Buddhist is to escape suffering. And they do this through awakening or what they call enlightenment, right? And what they teach is that you need to be detached from this life, that you need to be detached from this world because very often it's, it's these attachments that we have that are the cause of suffering. So we want to be detached from emotions. We want to detach from the, the material world and material pleasure because these things, when we pursue them or we let our emotions get the best of us, they cause suffering. So we want to separate ourselves from those things. They believe in reincarnation, that after death, the person is reborn into a new life. And the goal is to progress through a series of lives until you ultimately reach nirvana, which is, being come, which is becoming one with ultimate reality. That they say that this is infinite bliss, but, but most Buddhists, they say that this can't really be described because no one has... Once you're there, you're there, and you can't come back and explain it, right? But, but the idea here is like you kind of lose your sense of self. You're not an enduring self that endures through time, but you live a series of lives until ultimately you're kind of like absorbed into ultimate reality. I know I'm having trouble explaining it because they have trouble explaining it, right? Like, it's, it's hard to put it into words. But it's like, in the end, you're not there enjoying this ultimate bliss. There's ultimate bliss, but you're not the one who's experiencing it, right? So Islam, on the one hand, teaches that you experience either uh, judgment in hell or paradise in heaven, whereas Buddhism says, in the end, you don't, you're, it's not really you that's experiencing any of this, right? So as we can see, these different systems, they teach different things. We could do the same comparison with Christianity or Islam or Hinduism, and we would see that when you dive into the details, though there might be some surface similarities, when you dive in, they go different places. So no, all these religions are not the same. They don't all lead to God. They don't all even teach that they're trying to get to God. So they make contradictory truth claims. So, very often, there are objections to this idea of Christianity teaching that Jesus is the only way. And they come in different shapes or forms, but they kind of boil down to this. And so I'm going to give you um, some very specific forms of, of objections. And when you hear them out in the world, you're going to have to translate it in your head. Is this, is this what they are saying, right? So here's one objection to Jesus being the only way. And it might go something like this. You know, if you believe that Jesus or Christ is the only way to God, then you're arrogant and judgmental and Christianity is not true. Okay, so that might come in the form of something like this. You Christians, you're just arrogant, you're mean, you think you know it all, and anyone who thinks they know it all just doesn't, you're wrong, right? Like that, that is a form of that objection that, that we might hear. But when we look at that objection in detail, we see that it doesn't really follow. The accusation of being mean or judgmental or arrogant doesn't lead to the conclusion that Christianity is false. So how might, how might we respond? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that a person's character is independent of the truth of their belief. I did my best to like represent this here on my little doodle drawing that I have on the computer. All right, like um, here we have a guy He's, he's a mean person. He's not very happy. He's not very nice. Um, 
his belief might be right. And on the other hand, we've got someone who's happy and joyful and whatever, and their belief might be wrong. And the little dividing line is, like, the claim is either true or false, no matter the character of the person. Let me just give a little example of this. Let's imagine a little class of three or four-year-olds, and three or four-year-olds, they don't do math very well. They're just learning these new concepts. And let's say one of our little four-year-olds, he comes to the conclusion, he finally figures out that two plus two equals four. We're going to use simple truth today because we all agree on those, right? He comes to the conclusion that two plus two equals four. And let's say he looks at all the other two-year-olds or four, th three and four-year-olds and say, you guys are idiots. I can't believe that you guys don't understand this. It's simple math. You've got two things here. You've got two things here. It's four. Clearly, you guys are just dumb and don't get it. And he's just nasty and mean and rude because of his newfound knowledge. Now, we might say he shouldn't be nasty and mean and rude, but is his truth claim false because he's nasty, mean, or rude? No, two plus two equals four. It's independent of how he acts, right? So first of all, we need to separate out this idea that our beliefs are true or false based on how somebody acts. Very often you'll hear people in the media claim, well, Christianity's just false because look at how these Christians behave. It's like, actually, Christians behaving badly shows that Christianity is, is true because that's what Christianity teaches, that we're all sinners, that we all do wrong, that there's evil in our hearts and that we need to be forgiven, that we need to be transformed. But anyway, they'll discount, hey, all these Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Like, that doesn't mean Christianity is false. The other thing that we might say about this objection is that the person who is making the objection is also making a truth claim. You Christians, you're wrong. My view is right. Religious pluralism is right. Hinduism is right. Buddhism is right. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. That person is also making a claim to know the truth. Does that automatically mean that they themselves are arrogant and judgmental and then therefore their belief is untrue? Well, no, we, that's, a, that's a bad reasoning. If, if the objection could just be turned around and you could point the finger back at the other person, their objection is not a good objection, right? Have you ever heard, like, it's like, don't judge me. So you're saying that I'm wrong for saying that you're wrong. Isn't that also a judgment? Like, it goes, it goes both ways, right? Like, and... We obviously ought to have good attitudes. We ought to seek to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might live out the character of Christ in our lives, loving others, showing mercy, speaking the truth in love, sacrificing ourselves for others. But this objection that somehow making a truth claim is arrogant and judgmental and therefore that truth is not valid is just a false argument. It doesn't go through. It's not sound. All right? So the second argument then would be something like this. A person's beliefs are the result of historical accident. If they had been born in another time or another place, they would believe something else. So this would invalidate Christianity in their mind. Like if you had been born in Pakistan, you'd be a Muslim. And if you had been born in India, you'd be a Hindu. So, so it's just the result of our culture and our upbringing. Um, and that's why you believe that Christianity is true. But... It's just the result of cultural um, differences. So therefore, Christianity is untrue. Well, what, what might we say in response to that? Well, 
it's important to note that how a person came to believe something is independent of the truth of that belief. It doesn't matter how you came to believe it, it's either true or not true. Let's go back to our two-year-olds, for example, or our four-year-olds, all right? So let's say that four-year-olds are trying to solve a math problem, and they want to know what two plus two is. And so they can count to 10, and they're hoping that, you know, it's at least one of those because that's as high as they can count. So they write all the numbers down, one through 10, and they throw them in a bucket, you know? And then they reach in and close their eyes, pull one out, and the one pulls out the number four. He gets the right answer. He doesn't get there the right way. He doesn't reason, but he basically it's just by chance he gets the right answer. Does that invalidate the truth that two plus two equals four? Two plus two is four no matter what, no matter how he gets there. If he gets there the wrong way, no big deal. It's either true or it's not true. So how a person came to believe, whether it's just the faith of their parents or the faith of their culture, how a person came to believe is independent of whether or not something is true. This objection also can be turned back on the person who is making it. The one making the objection could be said to have arrived at their belief in the same way. You're just a religious pluralist because you were born in 2020 in this um, global economy where everyone knows every everybody's business all over the planet. That's why you're a religious pluralist, right? You could turn the objection back on the atheist or the religious pluralist or whoever is making this objection. You just point the finger back at them and say, therefore, your, your belief is untrue. And now we know that's a bad argument. That doesn't make their, their belief untrue, but it just, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, all right? We can just point that back at them. All right, so I think that these two objections, and again, you'll hear it in different forms, in different ways, but this is what it is at the heart, um, that these two objections ultimately fail. They're just not good arguments. They're actually textbook examples of logical fallacies, all right? So there's another objection that goes along with this that we want to deal with, and this objection is often a question that, that we just have on our own. We're not using it as an objection against our own faith, we just, we just wonder what is the answer to this question. And that question is, what about those people who never hear about Jesus? If Jesus is the only way, are these people judged for not believing in Jesus? They've never heard of him. Well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem just. Would God judge people for not believing in Christ when they've never heard of him. So today we're going to look at what the scripture says about this. And as we dive into this question, there are a couple of different angles that, that we need to look at. Um, but I believe the answer to this question is no. People who have never heard of Jesus are not judged because they rejected Jesus. Rather, what the Bible teaches is that they are judged based on what they do know. And that is what we've been calling natural revelation. So let's look at what the Bible says here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And we're just going to focus in on these three verses today. But remember, in the, in the past weeks, we've looked at verses 16 through 32. We've read through much of chapter 2 and a whole bunch of chapter 3 as well, right? So, so it's important that we're not just pulling these verses out of context. There, there's, a, there's a whole story that's going on here in the book of Romans about how God wants to save us. But we're going to focus in on here, and it talks about the wrath of God, the, 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 the justice of God, the the, the just punishment that we deserve for our sins. It says it's revealed against all unrighteousness that God's eternal power and his divine nature have been made known through creation and that all people are without excuse. And as you read on in the text, it says that, that mankind ultimately rejected God's revelation of himself, that they turned and they worshiped created things rather than the creator, and, and they experienced God's judgment by God stepping back. And it says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Ultimately, to where they just fall completely into evil and they approve of doing evil, right? So people suppress the truth and they reject God. In Romans 2, it talks about another way we know the truth of God. Romans 2, verses 12 through 16, it says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Right? We've, we've talked about these verses in, in the last few weeks as well. And it's just the, the idea that He's drawing out, there, there were the Jews, the people of God, and God revealed himself to the Jews in a very particular way. He gave them the law of Moses, and he was teaching people how they ought to live, right? And yet Paul says that there's this group of people, the not-Jews, the Gentiles, the people who are not Jews, they still recognize that there are moral duties, that there, there is right and there is wrong. And when they do things that line up with God's law, even though they don't know God's law, they're testifying that they themselves have some kind of understanding that God has written this moral law on their hearts. And so we can all recognize that there are things we ought to do and there are things that we ought not to do. And we recognize that very often we do the things we shouldn't do. That's what he's saying here. And so this is God the way that he's created us to function through our conscience, through our thoughts, we recognize that we all sometimes break his law. So Romans chapter 3, we won't read it today, but it basically says that everyone, every single one of us, uh, God's chosen people, the Jews, the, the Gentiles that God is seeking to save, 
everyone, all of us, are guilty before God, that no one is able to stand themse- to save themselves, that no one is able to stand before God and say, hey, God, I was good enough. Let me into your presence. That, that is out of the question. I'm not. I am guilty before him. Okay? So, God does not judge people who have never heard about Jesus on the basis of whether or not they accepted Jesus. God judges them based on what they know, that he is God, he has revealed it in creation, and he has revealed his moral law in their conscience. So both creation and conscience testify to God, and it seems like the answer is, hey, we all fall short of that, all right? So this naturally leads to another question for me and maybe for you and for many other people, all right? is could these people respond to natural revelation, both creation and conscience, in an appropriate way and be saved? You see where I'm going with this? Like, they're judged based on the revelation that they are given, which is creation and conscience. Could they respond to that in a right way and so enter into right relationship with God? And admittedly here, we, we want to be careful because I, I don't know that the Bible teaches a, a very clear yes or a, a very clear no. And there will be people that will be all over the spectrum on their answers to this question. All right? So as we work through this, this is where, where I am. And I want to encourage you to consider what I'm teaching. Consider if it lines up with Scripture. And it's, it's important that it, that it lines up with the totality of Scripture. You know, sometimes we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of God's judgment. And people are like, well, God wouldn't judge me. God is love. And we looked at the passage where it says God is love, and he's warning them to avoid judgment, right? Like, we can't just pick our favorite scriptures and say, we like these, and my ideas line up with my favorite scriptures. Our ideas have to line up with the totality of what God reveals in his word. So as we begin to enter into areas where This is not wild speculation, all right? Sometimes that's fun, but that's not where we're going today. This is like, how do we take these different truths and piece them together into a system that makes sense and takes into into account the teaching of all scriptures? It's important that that we do this carefully, acknowledging that we're doing it, and also being aware that we want to look at the entirety of scripture and not just one particular favorite verse that we have, okay? So what can we say about the answer to this question. Can people respond to this general revelation and be saved? Well, there are going to be some people that say yes. That, that somehow um, people, although they've never heard the gospel, although they uh, don't have the word of God, um, that they see God's existence in nature and feel uh, in their conscience that there is a, a moral lawgiver, and so somehow they respond in faith to that and they are saved. Now, even those people who would say, yes, that's a possibility, would probably say, um, even though it's a possibility, it's probably not very common. It seems like the teaching of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 is like the vast majority of people who just have general revelation reject God, turn away from him, and suppress the truth and worship created things rather than the creator, right? So, so, so that is a, a possible answer. Um, what cautions me about that answer 
is that there just aren't any clear biblical examples of that. There aren't clear examples of people only having creation and conscience and responding appropriately to God. If it is the case that that could happen, we shouldn't bank on it. All right? It's not something that we should rely on. However, there are examples of people who were saved even though they did not know Christ. There's an important question follow-up here. What do we mean by that? What, what, is, what does that mean? Well, what about the Old Testament saints? What are the people before Christ who knew nothing of Christ? How is it that they were saved? We can look at people like Abel, Job, Abraham, Naaman, the, the, the Syrian general, uh, the people in Israel who believed, the, the saints that are listed in, in Hebrews chapter 11. These people didn't know Christ. Abel, Job, Abraham, they didn't even have the law of Moses. And yet somehow they came into relationship with God and were saved. People who didn't even have the Scripture walked with God and had a life-giving relationship with Him. So what can we say about these people? First of all, it's important that we're clear. They are saved on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. This is what we looked at on Good Friday, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It says that, um, that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins and for the sins committed beforehand because God had passed by them. God had overlooked them. In other words, any sacrifices that these people made in the Old Testament with, with the sacrificial system at the tabernacle or the temple, or even before that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, any sacrifice that they made couldn't cleanse them from sin. It wasn't them paying the penalty for their own sin. Rather, it is Jesus' sacrifice that pays the penalty for their sins. That's what that verse means in Romans chapter 3 that God passed by their sins, and that ultimately God shows his justice by dealing with sin, uh, previous sins and current sins and future sins by pouring out that punishment on Jesus as Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross for us, right? So it's, they're saved through Jesus and his sacrifice, even though they did not know Jesus. Secondly, they were saved through faith. Paul, as he talks about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, he says that Abraham believed God, right? And this word, word faith, remember, we're, we're hammering home. It's not um, thinking something to be true without evidence. That's not the definition of faith from the Bible. Definition of faith from the Bible is trusting in God, trusting in the person of God. So Abraham had his relationship with God. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? So they were all saved through trust in God. They had some kind of faith-trusting relationship. And finally, it looks to me like they all had some type of special revelation, that their knowledge of God went beyond creation and what they could see in creation, and beyond what they could discern from their conscience and the moral system that they felt in their hearts that they all had some sort of special revelation, and we're not told in the Scripture what that was for each one of them. Like, I don't know what it was like for Abel to walk with God and offer a sacrifice. 
I don't know exactly what it was like for Abraham or for, for Job, who comes long before the Scriptures, long before the Mosaic Law. He's not pictured as an Israelite, right? Job is just some random guy in relationship with God. He's offering sacrifices on behalf of his children and all these things. Like we, don't, we don't know what that revelation was like, but God apparently revealed himself to Job in some way so that Job was able to enter into a saving relationship with him. Okay? So these things seem to be at least true, that they're saved on the basis of, of Jesus' sacrifice, even though they don't know anything about Jesus. They're saved through their faith in God as they walk in relationship with him. And they all had some type of special revelation, even if we don't know what that is, right? So as we look at what God is doing in the world, we're told that God has providentially ordered the world with the goal of saving people. This is what it says in Acts chapter 17. That from one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Right? In other words, God puts us in the times and places where we are so that we would find him. His goal is to save everyone is what we read in 1 Timothy 2, right? He wants all people to be saved. God is not hiding from us. Um, We're not here as the result of historical accident, but God placed us where we are so that we could find him. We can take this a step further. It's possible, it's at least possible, that the people who never hear about Jesus may be people who would not believe even if they had heard about Jesus. They wouldn't respond to natural revelation and creation of conscience. And if they had heard about Jesus, they would have rejected him anyway. This might be what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to the Jews. And he he says, if you guys um, had heard my father, had heard the father and learned from him, you would come to me. This is John 6, 45. It says, everyone who has heard from the father and learned from him comes to me. This is the idea that if you're seeking God, he's talking to the Jews here, if you were truly seeking God, you would recognize that um, I'm sent from God, and you would listen to me. So the idea here is that if they wouldn't respond to natural revelation, they may not respond to the proclamation of the gospel. They wouldn't receive Jesus. Let me take this a step further. God may see to it that those who would believe do hear the good news in some way, shape, or form. If we take seriously that God put us here in these times and places so that we would reach out and find him, it's possible then that whoever would receive Christ if they heard about him, God sets up the world in such a way that those people do hear and receive eternal life. Now, how does this happen? Well, it could happen a couple of different ways. It could happen through the proclamation of the gospel. We are told as followers of Jesus to be witnesses, to testify about what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in the world. And we need to take this charge seriously. Like, there might be people who come into life with God because you shared faithfully with them. God may have organized and set up circumstances in such a way that he puts you in a place exactly when you need to be there so that you can shed light on the truth. 
that you can stand up and speak about the love and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And we need to, to be serious about bearing witness and be faithful to sharing the good news with the people around us. Secondly, our God is not confined to what we do. These people might be given access to some other type of revelation. Could be similar to like Job or Abraham. People of the, the Old Testament. God, God is not limited to you sharing the good news. You need to be faithful in sharing. I need to be faithful in sharing. But God is not limited to that. We see it with the Old Testament saints. We see an example of this in, in the New Testament. There's this guy named Cornelius who's not a Jew, but he comes to believe in God. And so God gives him a dream. And in that dream, he's told to go find, to send people to get Peter. Peter comes, shares the gospel. He hears about Christ. He's filled with the Spirit, right? Like, like God reveals himself to people who are seeking him. We see this in the modern world. Um, very often we, we hear stories, especially coming from areas that are they're heavily influenced by Islam, where like having a Bible is, is not legal. Jesus shows up to these people in dreams and reveals himself. We've had a, a, a missionary here, a, a lady who was in, in, a, in a country where you couldn't have a Bible, and she ended up with a Bible. She was in trouble. She, like in, her, in, her idea, in her mind, like she'd already sinned before Allah. She'd already sinned before God by even like having this Bible, so she might as well read it. And as she starts to, to read this, this Bible, she begins to see the truths of God. And Jesus shows up to her either in a dream or a vision, and Jesus speaks to her. Like, even in places where it seems like they're impossible to reach, they, they are not out of the reach of God, right? So it may, might be that God can reveal himself to anyone who would believe in him, who would trust in him. So that opens up a whole lot of other questions, I'm sure. This is um, one attempt at answering those things, and I would encourage you to, to dive deeply into it, to study the Word of God, and make sure that what I'm saying lines up with the totality of Scripture, right? There, there, there might be something that I've missed, there might be something that I haven't thought about, but this, as, as I see it, is one good answer to that question. But we all need to be seeking truth, because truth is truth, whether we like it or not. Truth is truth, no matter how you came to believe it, truth is truth, no matter the character of the person who is teaching it. And we all are responsible for evaluating and seeking the truth. God wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth, is what the Scripture says. So when we ask this question, is Jesus the only way to God? This is a sum up everything we've talked about in the last two weeks. I believe that Scripture says that Jesus is the only way to God. It is only through his sacrifice there is one mediator between God and man. He is the only one who is uniquely suited to solve the problem that we have, and that is we are separated from God because of the evil things that we do. And it is Jesus. We deserve punishment because of justice, and it is Jesus who steps in and takes our place and bears the penalty. He is the only way that we can get to God. You can't have fellowship with God by any other faith, no matter how sincerely you believe it, we're told to reject idols. We're told to reject false gods. Today, we've said that the truth of Christianity is not dependent on the believer's character or how they came to believe. Those two are separate. And it's important that as you're talking with people that you're able to separate that out, separate that out and help them to see that. 
that those who, who never heard about Jesus, they're judged by the light, the revelation that they're given. And that is creation and conscience. If, those, if, if they are objects of wrath, if, if, if they deserve punishment, they deserve punishment just like we do because we've rejected God in nature, we've rejected God in conscience, we've done wrong things. So God is not unjust. He's not judging them unfairly. I think Scripture teaches that no one's going to be lost by historical accident because people are not here by accident. Acts 17 says that he has put us here so that we can find him and that he's not hiding from us. And then finally, God has ordered the world so that people can reach out and find him. As followers of Jesus, we need to be faithful to the task that we were given by Jesus himself. He says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. Like we have a task, we have a responsibility to share this good news that, that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the brokenness that's in the world. Jesus is the answer to the despair and the hopelessness and the depression and the fear and the anxiety. Jesus is the one who can set things right. All the injustices that we see, all the systemic problems that we see, it's not some government, not some politician that's going to save. It is only Jesus who can set things right. And one day he is going to return and he will set all things right and he will make all things new. That there will be a time when there will be judgment because evil will be dealt with. God will not let evil continue to exist. Evil will be dealt with. And God will establish his rule and reign. And he gives us an opportunity to enter into life with him, to enter into eternity with him. And he says, if you come to me and you trust in me and my sacrifice for you, you can have this life. Not just in the future, but now. This life is available in Jesus now. If we only turn to him, we can find healing and restoration and freedom from the things that bind us. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. Will we accept it? Will we will share the good news that there is life in his name. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to study your word together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how great you are God, I come to you just, just humbly, knowing that I don't have all the answers, that I'm limited, that I fail, that I fall short. But God, you are the God of grace who welcomes me with open arms. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand your truth and the light that is in Jesus. God, we turn to you because you're the only one who can save. God, I pray that your word would go forth, that it would change our hearts deeply, and that we might live in light of the love and mercy and grace and truth of the true and living God. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.